Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. My name is Aaron. I want to welcome you to our church, and I want to begin today by reading to you a story, a true story that is tragic, albeit somewhat humorous, and it's from the Radical Daily, which is a Turkish newspaper. This is what the Daily says. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader, another sheep, off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine, but thankfully they broke the fall of another 1,100 sheep who also fell but survived. Shepherds neglected the flock while they were eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. This story is a small picture of what sheep are like without a shepherd. When sheep are without a shepherd, they are prone to wander and they are easily led astray. I find it interesting that the Bible uses sheep as a metaphor for humanity. That as humans, we are prone to wander away from God and we are easily led astray. And so the imagery here is that of a shopping cart with a bad wheel. You ever try pushing a shopping cart with a bad wheel? It always veers to the left or veers to the right. And that is what our hearts are like. But another metaphor that the Bible gives is not only of sheep as a metaphor for humanity, but the Bible also uses the shepherd as a metaphor for Jesus himself. And so what a shepherd does for the sheep is that the shepherd guides the sheep in the right way, which is why shepherds always led from the front and not from the back, because the shepherds were sort of the compass or the GPS system for the sheep. In other words, Jesus, our ultimate shepherd, is sort of our true north, our north star that gives us a sense of uh, equilibrium, direction, and purposefulness uh, with our life. And for us as sheep, it is our job to point everyone else to that north star or that true north who is Jesus himself. Or to put it another way, it is our job to share our faith uh, with those that are prone to wander. Now, this doesn't rub uh, everyone the right way. Uh, I was talking to a couple once and uh, that was visiting. And the gentleman said, because uh, uh, I was just trying to hear his story, and he said, you know, she... She's always trying to convert me. She's always making me go to church, even though I try, I don't ever try to convert her. And he was both right and he was wrong. He was right, she was trying to share her faith with him. She was trying to convert him. But he was wrong in the sense that he was actually converting her without realizing it. By simply never talking about God, by never praying, by never reading the Bible, by never going to church, he was introducing her to a world that was completely devoid of God a secular world. And so yes, she was converting him, but he was also converting her to irreligion and secularism. 
Uh, many of you might know the illusionist and magician Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know his story, uh, Penn grew up as a Christian, uh, but later on in his life, he abandoned his faith and now has become a staunch atheist. And I want to read you a quote on the first page of your bulletin uh, where he actually talks about evangelism and sharing our faith from a skeptic's point of view. And listen to what he says. I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming right at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you, and this is more important than that. And he's right. And so here's the question. Why don't we share our faith as liberally as we ought to? I think there are many reasons for this, but I think one of the reasons why we don't share our faith as liberally as we ought to is because of the way that we view other people. So if you take a look with me at verse 36, it says that when he saw Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did a uh, sermon series on compassion. And when you take a look at the gospel accounts, there's a kaleidoscope of different emotions displayed and depicted by Jesus. So sometimes he's full of joy, full of love. Other times he's angry, he weeps, he's distressed, he's sorrowful. But the most common emotion that is depicted of Jesus throughout the New Testament is compassion. And we said that compassion is different from sympathy and empathy because sympathy is just saying, I'm sorry. Empathy is placing yourself in the other person's shoes, but with compassion, it goes one step further. You're not only saying sorry or placing yourself in their shoes, but you're placing yourself in their shoes to help lead them out of the suffering that they're experiencing. And so uh, compassion is not just a feeling that we're filled up with, but it's also an action which is why repeatedly throughout the New Testament it says that Jesus is moved by compassion. He's not just filled with it, he's moved by it. And so compassion always inspires uh, some sort of action. Now this is one of the challenges that we have as New Yorkers because we are always surrounded by a crowd. Yesterday I was near Times Square and I was reminded of why we don't go there. Uh, but tourists generally flock to Times Square. But crowds are something that we tend to avoid, especially if they don't know social etiquette and they're standing in the middle of the sidewalk with a large group of people and we sort of view crowds as sort of an obstacle in our way. But when Jesus looks at the crowds, he doesn't view them as obstacles that are in his way, but he views them with a sense of compassion. And a part of the reason why I think that we sort of become jaded or we don't see crowds the way that we ought to is, that, is because when something becomes over familiar with us, uh, it tends to breed apathy or we tend not to see it anymore. Uh, 10 years ago, David Foster Wallace was considered one of the most preeminent authors uh, in America before he tragically took his life. Uh, but before he died, he wrote an epic speech called This Is Water. And in the introduction of this speech, he talks about two young fish that are swimming and an older fish is swimming right past them. And the older fish says to the two young fish, good morning boys, how's the water? 
And the two young fish continue to swim along, and eventually one of the younger fish says to the other, what's water? And so the point of that illustration is the more we become familiar with something, the less we tend to see things. And that's one of the challenges that, uh, that we have being inundated by uh, crowds all the time. But when Jesus takes a look at the crowds, he is filled and he is moved by compassion for them for two reasons. Number one, it says that they are harassed and helpless. In other words, vulnerable, defenseless. But the second reason is they are sheep without a shepherd. And as we mentioned before, when sheep are without a shepherd, they are prone to wander and they are prone to get lost. A few weeks ago, I was watching a, a movie called About Schmidt, which is, uh, features Jack Nicholson, and he uh, plays a character, Warren Schmidt, who is a uh, retiring actuary for a life insurance company in Omaha, Nebraska. And this life insurance company throws like a, a retirement dinner for Warren Schmidt. And after he retires, he sort of enters into this new world where he's not working anymore. And he feels very meaningless. He feels very purposeless with his life. And one day as he's watching television, he sees a commercial for uh, some, some agency uh, asking people to sponsor a child. And so he decides to sponsor a child from Africa and the agency sends him an information packet and the packet, he opens up the packet, and there's a photo of a six-year-old boy named Ndugu from Tanzania. And without Ndugu knowing it, Ndugu quickly becomes Warren's sort of outlet for him to sort of uh, 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 vent the existential angst that he's feeling. And so, he, so Warren, who's like over 60 years, 60 years old, is now corresponding with his, uh, uh, I guess, new friend in Tanzania. And this is one of the letters that I want to read for you uh, on the first page of your bulletin, one of the later letters that he writes to Ndugu. And it says, Dear Ndugu, I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? I am weak, and I am a failure. There's just no getting around it. Relatively soon, I will die. Maybe in 20 years, maybe tomorrow, it doesn't matter. Once I am dead and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of, none at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. You know, what's so interesting about this letter is that if you, if you substituted the word Ndugu and you simply wrote the word God, where it would read, Dear God, I know we're pretty, all, we're pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference in the world. If you were to simply substitute Ndugu's name with the word God, you know what that would sound like? The Bible. It would sound like a chapter straight out of the book of Psalms, a chapter straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes, because the Bible is all about that. And I love reading portions of scripture like this and watching movies like this, because it's almost like, it's almost like someone's obnoxiously clapping in your face trying to wake you up or blowing an air horn right into your ear saying, don't you see? Don't you see how pointless life is? Don't you see how absurd life is? We're all gonna die eventually. No one's gonna remember us. So what's the point of living life at all? And I, the, the dark side of me, the philosophy side of me loves stuff like this because it, it wakes us up and it disrupts our busy and monotonous lives. But as soon as we all start to feel that angst swelling up within us, what do we typically do? Bust out our phones, scroll through social media, and we immediately jump our minds into another cyber world. 
Uh, I was talking to my cousin-in-law. We were having lunch last week, and he was telling me how he brought his phone into the store, and he told because it was broken. And so he goes up to the uh, the person working there, and he says, "I uh, I accidentally dropped my phone in in water, so it's not working." You know what the employee said? He said, "You mean you dropped it in the toilet, right?" <laughs> and my cousin was like. Yeah, how'd you know? He, and he goes, that's because everyone drops it in the toilet. Why do we bring our phones with us into the bathroom? We bring our phones into the bathroom because we're afraid to be alone with our own thoughts, even if it's for like a minute or two minutes. And so what do we do? We disrupt our minds or we distract ourselves from thinking a particular way. When Jesus sees this crowd and he sees that they are sheep without a shepherd, and they're lost, and they don't know which way to go. He's filled and moved with compassion for them. Uh, the, the final quote in your uh, bulletin uh, comes from a book called Divine Comedy, which is relatively new, written by uh, Glenn Scrivener. And Scrivener says, life is a tragedy, and this dismal tale is sold to us in every magazine and paperback. The 10,000 books you must read before you die. The 10 must-see destinations for your bucket list. The shape of the story is up then down, and the advertisers are primed to sell you the uppiest up that money can buy because the down really is a downer. Life, according to the wisdom of the age, is about enjoying our brief moment in the sun. We clamor upward, grab for ourselves all the achievements, experiences, and pleasures that we can, and then we are over the hill and the grave awaits. It's up, then down, the frowny face. The tragedy, but still, the new flavored latte from Starbucks is incredible. And have you tried hot yoga? And we're renovating the kitchen, so you know, that's nice. This is one of the reasons why the poet T.S. Eliot once said that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. And what Eliot meant by that is that suffering in particular is the greatest air horn that can be blown into our face to wake us up from our hurried and monotonous lives. And when, see, when Jesus sees people living so hurriedly and so monotonously, he is filled and moved with uh, compassion uh, for them. And this is the exact type of posture that we must have for one another as well, in particular the people that are in our city. Um, for those of you who are newer to our church, uh, when our church first started, we were about 40% seeker and skeptic. Uh, and as our church has grown, that number has sort of dropped to about 15%. And so about one out of seven or one out of eight people in our community are seeker and skeptic. And I've had so many enriching conversations with uh, so many of you about uh, your quest or to find some kind of ultimate meaning or truth. And I've also had some conversations that were difficult where I felt like I had to wear Kevlar before I jumped into the conversation because of how hostile it could be. But one of the things that has really helped me, uh, in particular if the person might be a little bit more on the angry side or on the hostile side, is to, is to hear their stories. Not just their questions, but to hear their stories. But, because typically underneath the intellectual questions that people have, underneath it are emotional questions that have not been attended to or addressed or healed or counseled at all. Uh, Dr. Paul Lim is a, a historian and a scholar at Vanderbilt University, which is not a religious institution, and so he considers himself an academic missionary. And he was invited by Columbia students uh, from a, a particular parachurch organization to come and just stand outside the library where the big steps are, and just to answer any questions that students might have. And so there was a big whiteboard right behind him, and there were uh, questions up there like, if God is good, why is there evil? 
what about injustice, crusades, Spanish Inquisition, all that kind of stuff. And so he would just stand there from nine to one to address any questions that people might have. There was one particular Columbia student that came up to him and he said, I have a question. And his question was, if God is good, how do you explain the Holocaust? And Dr. Lim's first response was, rather than answering, he said, before I answer your question, can I first ask you what ethnic background you are? And so the student goes, well, what difference does it make what ethnic background I am? And so Dr. Lim says, uh, I don't know, but it might. And so the student says, I'm Jewish. And so Dr. Lim goes, well, before I answer your question then, can I first say I'm sorry for all that your people have gone through? And after he said sorry, he proceeded to answer his question as best as he could. And after he tried to answer the, uh, the question, he asked the student, did I answer your question? And the student's response was this, no, you didn't answer the question of my mind, but you did answer the question of my heart. Do you know what he was saying there? We are not just intellectual machines where we need new information uploaded into our minds. We have souls, we have hearts, we have feelings, emotions, pain, suffering. We're not just you know, machines where we need new information. Do you know why I say that? I say that because if you understand that, you realize that the greatest apologetic, the greatest witness that you can make to other people about who our shepherd is, is by simply loving other people. You don't have to quote dead philosophers. You don't have to have a, a seminary degree to evangelize. Anyone can evangelize because love is the greatest apologetic. If you have enough to have faith in your own life, if you know enough to believe yourself, you know enough to share your faith as well. If you know enough to have faith, you know, you know enough to share your faith. And so the goal in evangelism isn't sharing our faith so that the person will convert. That's not necessarily the goal. The goal is sharing our faith, period. The results are up to God. And that is something that all of us can do. But we must first be filled with compassion in order to extend that, uh, that gospel witness. The other thing that we see in this passage comes in verse uh, 37, and it says that Jesus says to his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, uh, but the workers are few. And here the analogy goes from shepherding to farming, and he says that the harvest is plentiful, and this is another way of saying that there are plenty of people that don't know who I am. And so if you think about our own city, 5% of our city is Christian. If you think about Cambodia, which is where we're sending our first vision trip to, 2% of Cambodia is Christian. Uh, when I was a missionary in, uh, in China, one of the questions that people would ask me is, why do you want to go to China? And my simple response was, there are 1.4 billion reasons why we should all go to China, actually, uh, because people matter. And so the harvest uh, is plentiful based upon this verse. One of the things that uh, people asked me when we were starting Exilic was, why do you want to start another church? Uh, here in the city. And there are two reasons. Number one, there are a dearth of churches that are in our city. We need more and more churches. But the second reason why we started was for the same reason Southwest Airlines started their company. When Southwest Airlines was starting their company, their donors asked them the question, why do you want to start another airline when there are so many other airlines? And their response was, well, we're not competing against other airlines. We're competing against other modes of transportation, cars, trains, bikes, walking, 
That's our competition, not this. And similarly, the reason why we started our church is not to compete with other churches or to cannibalize other churches. We're all on the same team. The reason why we started our church is to compete with the world and everything that this world has to offer to garner a sense of identity, meaning, and purpose completely apart from God. That's our competition, and that's why the harvest is plentiful. And, that, and the verse continues, and it says, but the workers uh, are few. Now, part of the reason why the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are so few, is not only because of the way that we view other people with a lack of compassion, but it's also because of the way that we view ourselves. You know, sharing, uh, sharing about Christianity has never been easy to me. And one of the reasons why it's always been very, very difficult for me is because of the way that I view myself. And the way that I viewed myself was as a salesman. Jesus is the product, the other person is the potential customer, and I need to close the deal or make the pitch in a way where they say the sinner's prayer or whatever. And only then was I successful. And because I viewed myself as some sort of salesman trying to pitch a product, it felt unnatural, I felt fake, and that's why I just stopped doing it altogether. And so a large part of it was the way that I viewed uh, myself. But you know what's even faker than sharing the gospel in an unnatural way? What's even faker than that is not sharing our faith at all. If the truest sense of who you are, the truest essence, your identity, is as a son and daughter of God, and you conceal it and hide it from everyone, that's being fake. That's being an imposter. That's not being genuine. So here's the question. How can we share our faith in a more natural way, in a way that sort of comes easier to us where we don't have to feel like a salesman? Well, again, a large part of it is the way that we view ourselves. And the good news is, the good news is we're actually all natural evangelists already. We actually evangelize or, or share things without even knowing it. And we typically share things that we love. So can I share with you something that I've fallen in love with recently that's actually sort of changed my life? I'm not gonna mention the company, although I know some of you work there, but just in case there are competitors here, I signed up for a company that partners with all these restaurants in the city. And so this company, if you sign up for it, because they have a partnership with all these restaurants in the city, you get sort of a, a discount. And so the restaurant will offer one entree, a different entree per day. And you can typically buy a lunch for under $6. I got a promotional sale for $3.49. So I can get lunches now for $3.49 at almost any restaurant, seemingly almost any restaurant in the city. It's like changed my life just because I love food, I love variety, and it's an easy excuse for my daughter and I to go out of the house. And so I've been telling everyone, you have to sign up for this. This is the greatest thing on. It's a sliced bread, and so I've been telling everyone about it because when you love something enough, it just comes out of you naturally. When you love something enough, it actually is pretty easy to share. And when you love something enough, other people can feel how much you love that thing. And when you love something enough, you can't help but talk about it. So how much do you talk about God? A lot of it stems out of how much we love him. In verse 35, it says that Jesus went from village to village and town to town, sharing the good news. The, the irony here is that as he was sharing the good news, he himself was the embodiment of that good news. And I'll give you an illustration of what that looks like. Uh, many, many moons ago, uh, my friend's fiance 
she lost her engagement ring in a large park. And so she was flipping out. My friend was flipping out because of how much money he paid for the ring. And so we are on our hands and knees in this large park looking for the diamond ring. And we couldn't find it. And so my friend has the genius idea of going to Home Depot and getting metal detectors. So we got two metal detectors and we're actually combing through the fields. And wouldn't you know it, we found the diamond ring. And because we're cheap, we returned the uh, metal detectors right afterwards. <laughs> but we found the diamond rings. Now, that's a true story. That's actually a true story. Here's a hypothetical story. Let's say that my friend's fiance, she lost her hair tie or like a tic-tac. Do you think we'd be on our hands and knees combing through the entire park for a tic-tac or a hair tie? Absolutely not. Why? Why in this case are we on our hands and knees and in this case we're not? It's because you only look for something that's lost if it's valuable to you. You don't look for something that's lost if it's not valuable to you. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save that which was lost, you and me, because of how prone to wander we are. And so Matthew 18, it says that he is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go looking for the one lost sheep because every person matters. I quoted to you earlier Isaiah 53 about how prone we are to wander, but I didn't finish that verse. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his or her own way. But the verse goes on and it says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sins, all of our wandering, the way that we have lived our lives has now been transferred to him. And we are now made white as snow and white as wool. And I'll close with this. Uh, Macbeth, uh, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth uh, received a, a prophecy from a trio of witches. And the witches told him that he would be the next king of England, uh, a king of Scotland. And uh, when he tells his wife about this prophecy, they are quickly consumed with selfish ambition. And so they preemptively, as it were, kill King Duncan and they usurp his throne. But because they usurped his throne this way, uh, they eventually have to murder more and more people in order to protect their throne. And so Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are now filled with a sense of guilt and shame because of all the blood that, are, that, that is on their hands. And Lady Macbeth in one scene says, who would have thought that the old man would be filled with so much blood? Cannot all the perfumes of Arabia sweeten the this, this smell of my bloody hands? And the doctor goes, this is beyond my practice. But we have a physician, we have a doctor who can assuage all of our guilt and shame that no matter what we have done, no matter what you have done, no matter how much blood or guilt that you have on your hands, though our sins are like bloody scarlet and crimson, we are made whiter than snow and wool because he takes all of our sins in our place. And what we get is his perfect righteousness. And when you enter into a relationship with our good shepherd, he turns us into many shepherds, where we are to steward the other sheep in our care. 
And so what if we viewed ourselves as miniature urban shepherds taking care of these sheep in our urban concrete jungle, where instead of living in the city to loot it or to, to plunder its spoils with university, money, access, network, we lived in our city to be shepherds for the people that are here, for people that are prone to wander, that are easily led astray. But not only for our city, but also for our world. And so one of the reasons why we've been doing this sermon series is because we sort of, we're sort of piggybacking upon our, our denomination, the BCA's vision to send 1% of our church long-term, so that's four people somewhere around the world, 10% of our church short-term, whether it's a summer trip or a winter trip somewhere, and we're sending our first team to Cambodia in February, a team of seven, and we want 100% of our church to support uh, the work of global missions, not only in our city, but also all over the world. And I'll close with this imagery. If you ever watch a basketball game, if you ever go to MSG or, or to Barclays Center, you, if you ever watch a Knicks game or a Nets game, you'll see 10 people hustling, running up and down, jumping up and down, while 10,000, 20,000 people are watching on the sidelines. And sometimes the church can look like that. And so it's my hope and challenge to every single one of us that it would be the exact opposite. Well, we're not all on the sidelines, but we're workers on the court, hustling, jumping up and down, running back and forth to serve something that is bigger than ourselves, a kingdom that is big, bigger than the kingdom of self. Let's pray together. Lord, would you uh, baptize our imaginations with a greater, greater love for you, stir our hearts to be uh, people that live for something that is bigger than ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray.